Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to Brexit Means, The Guardian's regular weekly podcast on all things Brexity. In this episode, we're going to be looking at how Brexit might affect Scotland, where, of course, 62% of voters cast their ballots for Remain in last year's referendum, a proportion that, if you believe the pollsters, has since risen to nearer 66 or 67%. So strong is Scotland's support for the EU, in fact, that not a single one of its 32 electoral regions voted Leave last June. So that now leaves the country facing something of a problem. Scotland has always viewed itself as a small country in Europe, a country that places huge importance on access to the EU's single market and the four freedoms that are a part of it, including the free movement of people, about which Scotland also feels very differently than, for example, the east of England. A range of studies have also suggested that Brexit, particularly a hard Brexit that would leave the UK outside the single market and the customs union, which is, after all, what the British government still insists is what it wants, could hit the Scottish economy particularly hard. A Scottish government study last year put the damage at something like £11 billion a year, with the dent in Scottish public finances at nearly £4 billion. Other economists more recently have come up with figures including 80,000 possible job losses and wages falling by up to £2,000 a year. Now, numbers like that, of course, could only stiffen the resolve of the Scottish nationalists. As a country with its own long-standing and deep-rooted feelings about independence from a union, in this case the United Kingdom, the harm a bad Brexit is projected to inflict on Scottish exports, economic growth and prosperity led many in the immediate aftermath of the referendum to say that a second independence referendum was inevitable in Scotland and possibly imminent. Well, it may still be inevitable, who knows, but the relatively poor performance of the Scottish National Party in June's snap elections, it lost 21 of Scotland's 59 seats in Westminster after sweeping 56 of them just two years earlier, seems to have made it somewhat less imminent. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, however, does have a clear mandate for a second independence referendum and has repeatedly said that the British government's chaotic handling of the talks is making the case for that second referendum stronger by the day. 
A more immediate question finally is whether or not Britain's devolved administrations, that's Scotland and Wales, will sign off on the EU withdrawal bill that's currently going through Westminster. There were signs of greater understanding here after the latest meeting between Sturgeon and Theresa May, but the Scottish and Welsh parliaments still have to grant their legislative consent to the Brexit bill, and Sturgeon has said that May still has a long way to go to reassure the devolved administrations that Westminster is not planning a power grab on devolved policy areas coming back to Britain from the EU after Brexit, which could include things like agriculture and fisheries. Well, with me to discuss all this and much more are The Guardian's Scotland correspondent Libby Brooks and Catherine Styler, a Scottish Labour MEP. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's start, shall we, with this very broad question of what is it about Scotland's relationship with Europe that's so very different to England's relationship with Europe. Catherine, can I begin with you? What I mean, what, what makes Scotland's view of the EU so different? Since the referendum and the result, I've done a lot of reflection on this uh, particular point. And my son at the moment is studying the the wars of independence back when Alexander III fell off his horse. And it resulted in Scotland having to look to uh, Europe in the 13th century. And it's not this is not me quoting this could possibly be one of the reasons that Scotland had 200 years of peace and stability with uh, England up until that particular point. But there is something there about the fact that in Scotland we have had this relationship with Europe in a different way I think to many parts of England and it's not all of England it's some parts Mm. of England and I think this has given us a different perspective and when it has come to working in the European Union we've worked in a union with England since 1707 and we've worked in a union very similar to sharing responsibility sharing what we do that there is perhaps something there that this outward lookingness of working together is something that uh, is not alien to Scotland in a way which for some parts of England has been very difficult since the very beginning Mm. of that relationship with the European Union So it comes down to a question of of sort of sovereignty really in a way But I don't think that's what we talk about in Scotland so much. I think that it's about how, what is in the best interests of our economy, of mm. of our people, of how we look at things. And certainly when it comes to, say, one part of the Scottish economy, which is food and drink, mm. absolutely pivotal that we have access to the single market. And that's something that's being threatened at the moment with the current talks. Yeah, that's very interesting, isn't it? And so it's more about a kind of an idea of being able to, or a willingness to share sovereignty in in the interests of a kind of a greater good, which might not be so present in, as you say, some parts some of parts. England. Yeah. Libby, is that broadly, I mean, do you agree with that? What's your take on why Scotland voted 62% to remain? I do very much agree that that sense of being outward looking and the need for, you know, cooperation and collaboration across national borders is, is something that is, I think, sort of very key to the Scots political identity. And, you know, as, as Catherine points out, it has been for centuries. I do also think, though, it is worth, if we're looking at things from a historical perspective, <laughs> just, just looking, looking slightly, slightly, slightly closer uh, to the uh, 75 referendum when, when of course, um, Scots were, were kind of markedly more sceptical about common market membership. And in fact, I think it was voters in Shetland and the Western Isles were the only ones in the UK to vote against membership. And indeed, at that time, you had the SNP, who are obviously, you know, sort of characterising themselves now as the sort of pro-European 
champions. Um, you had the SNP, you had so people like Winnie Ewing famously talking about a vote to remain in the common market being <clears throat> like signing a death warrant for Scottish prosperity. Hmm. So what's changed in that intervening sort of 44, 40-odd years then? I would guess that a lot of it is to do with, again, as Catherine has pointed out, those those very kind of practical benefits of membership like freedom of movement. But I think it's also kind of worth noting again that if you actually unpack the vote in this this last EU referendum, you know, Scottish opinion is, is not uncritical of the EU. Certainly, people were clearly able to see far more positive things about it than in other areas of the country. But I think, um, you know, your kind of average Scottish voter would, would probably say, you know, on reflection, we need to be inside the EU, but would certainly like it if, if Brussels was perhaps not as sort of strongly in charge as it has been, or, you know, they would, they would want to see reforms and so forth. So um, in some ways, yeah, and in some ways, perhaps the, the mood in Scotland is, is not so different from, you know, a sizable segment of, of voters in, in England. I don't, I don't know if Catherine would uh, agree with that. I think there's generally, you know, a lot of work being done on analysis, you know, and you can't make generalisations because you're absolutely right, Libby. It's not as straightforward to say mm-hmm. every Scot is pro the European Union. I mean, mm-hmm. I think in Scotland we benefited and we visualised that benefit of, say, European structural funding. And um, and you just can see that with an example of the, the University of the Highlands and Islands that wouldn't exist if it wasn't for structural funding. And, and things like sort of transport links and that, and that kind of stuff that really you can see a, a real physical impact of the EU in Scotland that perhaps you, you, you might not in, in other parts of in other parts of the country maybe, maybe we've spoken more about it and about how it mm. works and kind of um, even with enlargement uh, Scotland has still benefited from elements of European funding and that's been important in terms of some of the projects that would never have happened if it hadn't been for that kind of cooperation mm. and also you see now the partnerships that have developed over those decades of partnership across you know other European countries that are now looking at the models of partnership that Scotland has adopted to benefit local communities and how best to use that kind of funding mm. is probably some of the best examples across the European Union how best to use that additional funding for the benefit of citizens. Yeah, that's very, it's really interesting. I mean, this is one of the things that really interests me, this difference of opinion on freedom of movement and EU migration. Because clearly migration, immigration, EU immigration, as we call it here, uh, freedom of movement, as they call it on the continent, um, was one of the, the big drivers in the Brexit vote last June. Uh, Catherine, is it true that Scotland has tended to see uh, freedom of movement and, and immigration of EU workers as not just something that's important to address, you know, labour shortages in very key industries in Scotland, like agriculture yeah. and food processing and tourism yeah. and what have you. But yeah. actually, you know, as as much broader way of solving um, large demographic issues, um, particularly in sort of in, in rural areas and things like that. I mean, I mean, Scotland has historically had a population problem and immigration from the EU has come to be seen as a a, a way of, 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 you know, resolving that. I think that 
it's more the practical, the pragmatic mm. issue of saying tourism across Scotland, how our tourism industry wouldn't, um, you know, be able to exist the way it exists without um, that labour movement from, but also it's the welcoming nature. I think, you know, at the end of the Second World War, many Poles had no option but to stay in Scotland. So our Polish community had been quite established. Um, and so when the new Polish community came in, um, that was, there were structures there and elements of um, support, which maybe in other parts of the UK we're not there right. and we're not accepted and we're seen as being very alien so I think that um, my experience of how people think is more pragmatic than saying we have a demographic problem in Scotland and we want to solve it it was not seen like that I think it's just been the fact that our tourism industry is it, it relies and, and is very successful because of of the, of migrant labour and the accepting community that is there to make sure that people feel that they are welcomed and that their labour is, is valued and that that her uh, tourism industry wouldn't exist without them. Libby, is that your view as well? Yeah, I do think um, a part of this is perhaps also that, that successive Scottish governments have also just been a bit better at communicating to the mm. public at, at, at large what they need and, and what, you know, in, in this case, sort of EU nationals, but, but more generally what, what the EU is offering them. But I think I think certainly there is a, a sort of ethic of, of welcome that you're referring to, Catherine, as well. I mean, it's certainly when, when I was reporting on the status of EU national sort of immediately after the vote was sort of very much in um, in flux and there was a lot of concern about mm. the Westminster government using them as bargaining chips and so forth. The, just the, generally the, the public mood up here was incredibly supportive and, and not in a sentimental way, but there was a real sort of feeling of rallying round, um, you know, this group of people. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and a real feeling that Scotland needs them then. As far as both of you are concerned, could Scotland cope if the supply of EU workers suddenly dried up completely after Brexit? I mean, they, they, really, they really are sort of crucial to parts of the economy. I mean, not just sort of in, in the public sector, health, education and so forth. But I think it's something like 25% of um, research staff in, you know, mm. in, sort of in, in order to keep our burgeoning technology sector going, um, our European, um, you know, that it's sort of it's really across the board. Mm. Catherine, is that something you'd... Uh, I, you'd I agree with that. I think that, um, I mean, it is across the board. It isn't just, I mean, I mentioned tourism, mm. but in the university sector, um, you know, it wasn't a question people had asked before about your status. You know, you were automatically there because you could be as an EU citizen. And now I think that um, the uncertainty, this is that some people in key sectors are highly mobile, highly desired and, and can move around and if the question of their citizenship I mean that's why I think that most of us thought it's a no-brainer, make sure that people who are EU citizens are just guaranteed the same rights from day one, mm. that would be an easy thing to do mm. and because that hasn't happened, the uncertainty that creates not just for the individual but their families too, is just um, I, I just think it's unacceptable, it's something that yeah, can and it would have been solved. a very early win for Britain. It could have been and it's such a missed opportunity well not an opportunity I don't want us to lose our citizenship I feel that it's somebody born in 1973 who's always been an EU citizen that losing my EU citizenship is just oh diabolical mm. but if we are in the situation we're in the, the the best worst option is to make sure those who can stay do stay and are guaranteed their citizenship yeah, yeah. okay well now when you mentioned the importance of of, uh, of of EU workers in the in the economy more 
broadly speaking, it does look as though most of the studies that have that have been produced so far since the ref- in the run up to and since the referendum seem to show that the, the Scottish economy would take a particularly heavy hit particularly uh, from a hard Brexit that would that would leave Britain outside the customs union and the single market. Libby, is that your view? Is that, is that what most of the studies have, have seemed to show? And is that something that, that people in Scotland are worried about? Yeah, there's a lot of, of concern about, about this at the moment. We had our Fraser of Allender Institute bringing out a report on the economic impact of Brexit on Scotland in the the middle of the summer and they were sort of talking particularly about the effect of this sort of shock effect of of reducing migration on the Scottish economy Mm. and in fact just this week you had another report coming out from the LSE which was talking about in fact the Scottish, Welsh and Northern Irish taking the biggest hit to, to their living standards already. Catherine, would the consequences be dramatic for Scotland of a very hard Brexit? I think Scotland would would suffer a great deal from a very hard Brexit. And if you just look at food and drink and if you just put down to kind of just our fishing exports. Mm. Um, I mean, it's always struck me when we we, um, visited some places in the West Coast and looked at the live prawn market. Um, Live prawns are caught off the West Coast of Scotland or on paella plates in Madrid within 24 hours. Mm. Now, what happens to that? You know, a a prawn that's caught, you know, and and, and delivered to Madrid. It can't afford to wait (laughs) at at a a customs check somewhere. No, it can't really. And and it's got a shelf life um, Mm. compared to whiskey, which can can rest and all Mm. of this. So what happens to that? And that's and and I was talking to someone about the 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 way that they transport the prawns um, down to Madrid and how they come back um, with other um, goods. Hmm. How you know what what are the customs checks? And I think some individuals who remembered the situation before we were members of the European Union remembered all the paper checks that had to go through, and were reflecting the fact: well, this happened again. That hmm. this is what we are going to be facing. A you know a flurry of bureaucracy and red tape, um, which is not what those who are providing us to leave are suggesting. And is that something in, in, in your uh, in your sort of experience, something that, that, that your constituents and that, uh, that you know, that, 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 that people are, are really talking about and are taking seriously? I think those who are affected or who are in those businesses are obviously making um, plans at mm. the moment because there's such uncertainty. If you've got the government today saying we're not going to be part of the single market or the customs union, well, that's consequences for businesses having access to the single market. Yeah. I mean, and these are very real. And we've only got until the 29th of March at mm. 11 p.m., supposedly, to have all of this sorted. And currently, we aren't even away from the three key issues of citizens' rights, the divorce bill and uh, the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland to move on to the other issues that need to be debated and discussed. So this uncertainty at this moment is uh, is not good for our uh, our businesses that rely on access to the single market. Yeah. I mean, and how, so how could all this play out then in the the whole sort of independence debate? Um, Libby, what what's your feeling on where this now stands? I mean, obviously, that you know, there was there clearly hasn't been a, a kind of decisive pro independence bounce from Brexit so far. Has there? Well, I mean, what do you think would have to happen for for that bounce to come? Um, 
I mean, I think I think what is what's interesting about the the prospect of, of a second independence referendum is the way that it, it played so badly in the uh, last general election yeah. in in June, um, and obviously you had um, you had sort of Nicola Sturgeon coming out and saying that Brexit meant that she would want to call um, a second independence mm. referendum probably before. Um, March 2019, and and that prospect of seemed to be a real vote loser yeah, in in the general much election, a of voters, yeah. um, mm. and and which 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 then sort of prompted her to to really kind of pull back on sort of setting any time frame. And I really, although although obviously she 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 does sort of continue to refer to the fact that she she has this mandate from the Scottish parliamentary elections to to hold a, an independence referendum. But um, but I think just just looking at the polling, even you know staunch SNP supporters and people who voted yes in the 2014 referendum are are not keen on um, on the prospect of another vote coming soon. And and I wonder sort of how much of that is is just a just a kind of general fatigue mm. at um, I mean it's, voting fatigue basically. <laughs> yes. I think you can. Yeah. I think you can you can have too much of a democratic right, can't you? <laughs> I mean it certainly feels like, like we've had we've had that in Scotland over the last few years. Yeah. But I mean no I mean more more seriously I think it's it's also the fact that people simply don't want more uncertainty. An already uncertain time. Yeah. 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 Catherine, does that I mean is, does that does that chime with what you I mean what yeah. longer term, what I mean what sort of 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 numbers do you think would Nicola Sturgeon need to to look for in terms of polling do you think if she was to call a, a second independence referendum and and I mean also speaking for your party uh you know if if Brexit did turn into a a, a car crash where would Scottish Labour stand on a on a on a second independence referendum well, if I maybe start with that one first, obviously I I, I believe in unions, so uh, my uh, my my uh, support for Scotland remaining part of the UK and the UK remaining part of the European Union are kind of similar. And I remember wearing my Better Together badge in the European Parliament where they thought this wasn't about uh, Scotland and uh, the UK, but about Scotland, uh, but, but the UK and Europe, mm. you know. Um, but I think that. Um, the, the whole issue of an independence referendum is firmly on the back burner. And I think what is being discussed now is, you know, how can we remain part of the single market and the customs union if the option of being part of the European Union is on, not on the table? And, um, and that, 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 you know, I would, as I say, prefer to remain fully part of the European Union and I will continue to advocate for that. But if we're not part of that, uh, I sit in the EEF delegation, Mm-hmm. We had our meeting last week, and um, it's you know very clear to me that um, having access to the single market at this moment and having that certainty for our businesses and for for people more generally is really really important. And okay, we will not have any influence. You know this idea about taking back control. Well, you know the three words that it will haunt us uh, for mm. a long long time. Uh, far from taking back control, we've lost control. Yeah. We've lost influence, and you can see that already with what's happened in the European institutions but put that to one side we need to retain our membership of the single market as a bare bare minimum and in in, in that context how how closely is Scotland watching this whole sort of Northern Ireland republic
Republic of Ireland debate and the, and the questions around the border there uh, and and this, this suggestion uh, from the, the the European Union that and and from Dublin indeed that Northern mm. Ireland might somehow remain part of something like the customs union. I mean, if that were if a way were to be found to make that work, might that be something that Scotland, you think, would would, would also try and push for? I think, sadly, geographically, we don't have a border with an existing EU member mm. state. And that's where the, the, the challenge arises. Of course, every avenue should be investigated. But um, I, I, I think the signals from the the, the shock were quite remarkable um, when they were saying about, uh, you know, that the, the UK really hasn't thought this through. Mm. And, and the trouble with internal politics with the Northern Ireland is I think you've got the DUP that wants a British solution for no border and you want Sinn Féin that wants a European solution to no border. So the challenges around that are the internal politics that face, and obviously we know that the DUP are propping the Conservative government up at Westminster. So um, hugely challenging, but I think that um, in the circumstances we find if we're no longer going to be a member of the European Union, the best, worst option is to retain single market um, uh, membership um, and that uh, would be through an EAF dissolution. A sort of Norway model. Uh, What is being touted more recently is the Canada um, Mm. agreement uh, situation and that is far from ideal. Now of course John I'm taking notes on Catherine's answer on this because (laughs) you will be you'll be aware that um, that Scottish Labour has a new leader as of of this weekend Richard Leonard uh, won the vote very decisively he was the left-wing Corbynist candidate and it was very interesting that, that he beat the, the more centrist Anna Sarwar to victory. Um, particularly interesting though because one of the criticisms levelled against him during the campaign was that he had um, voted alongside Tory MSPs in favour of triggering Article 50 in a Hollywood vote earlier this year. And um, although he was actually interviewed um just after his um, after his win, and and he sort of came out very strongly saying that he backed the Scottish government's policy um, of um, of wanting to repatriate powers to Scotland mm-hmm. in in the wake of Brexit, saying that he believed there was a cast iron case for this. But but I do think it, it is going to be interesting to see how. Uh, Scottish Labour and how, how Richard Leonard sort of plays this over over the next week or so because I think he does he does find himself at odds with um, well certainly to a degree we'll we'll see sort of how much of a degree um, at odds with the mood in Scotland and and we've still yet to see exactly how he's going to handle that. Hmm. Hmm. Well, you mentioned there this question of repatriation of powers, Libby. I mean, that's the that that that's the sort of immediate problem looming on the kind of very near horizon, isn't it? The, the Brexit bill, the withdrawal bill, is is, yeah. is currently going through Westminster, and both Nicola Sturgeon and the, the the Welsh Assembly have said they're looking for very significant concessions from Westminster on what they have described as basically a kind of a power grab. The, the mm. idea that obviously some of these, you know devolved powers will be coming back from the EU to Westminster and and the government's intention appears to be basically to kind of hang on to those um, and then um, decide at a later date, uh, you know, how they see fit to to, to redistribute them out to the devolved administrations. Um, Catherine, can I start, what are the real, the most important issues here, do you think? What are the the powers that the the Scottish government are are most worried might be retained in, in Westminster? 
Well, I think there's serious issues around agriculture and fisheries, but there's also issues around uh, legal issues, which in Scotland we have obviously a different legal system mm. and how that works in practice. So I think that um, there was, I think there have been, there was a meeting last week between the First Minister and the Prime Minister. I think there's, there has to be better cooperation, a more open cooperation uh, between both uh, Wales and Scotland and how um, the devolved administrations will be included. And I think that um, should be a high priority of the UK government. So I think there has to be clarity. Mm. Um, the fact that we're talking about Henry VIII's powers yes. in 2017 is extraordinary when we've had a devolution for, well, well, almost two decades, you know, and um, there is going to be serious scrutiny over what is going to come back to Scotland with the exit bill. And so it should be. And that will be for both the UK Parliament and the Scottish Parliament, the Welsh Assembly and you know Northern Ireland to look at that very seriously, to work together to be able to secure what is the best for the best interest. We don't want to be going back the way in terms of, and, and if what's interesting is the fragility of some of this stuff, which some of us have just taken for granted that devolution has secured certain elements of, of control in Scotland. Mm. And uh, that has been questioned which again is quite extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, Libby, will will I mean, when push comes to shove, will will the Scottish Assembly withhold its consent? <laughs> Parliament, I beg your pardon. I do beg your pardon. Will the uh, will will the Scottish Parliament withhold its assent? Well, I thought the mood music around the last meeting between Nicola Sturgeon and Theresa May, which which Catherine mentioned, was was very interesting because. Um, Previously, uh, the first minister has has been pretty sort of sharp um, about about how she's she's found discussions with me. I think in the the last one in June, mm. she said it was like um, she felt Theresa May was sort of unable to have a, a relaxed conversation, and she felt like she was reading from a script the whole time. Whereas this time, at least uh, she described it as as cordial, which which really is is quite a distinct change of tone I think mm. and and this is happening also at the time that the Scottish Conservatives are are making um, sort of discreet overtures to, to the SNP and you had um, one sort of fairly senior uh, Conservative MSP up here Adam Tompkins talking about the fact that there wasn't there was no need for a power grab that these um, that these 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 powers, so particularly farming and fishing, should be going directly to the the Scottish Parliament once the UK has left the EU, and that that there ought to be a way of amending the bill to to ensure that 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 happened. And so so it it feels like I mean we you know we are still a very very long long way to go, mm. and and obviously the SNP has has said that it will be recommending a rejection of of the bill as it as it you know stands now but i think the the direction of travel certainly mm. seems to be um more positive than certainly i i thought it was looking you know even a month or so ago okay one final question maybe to each of you Lo- i mean longer term if i could ask you to sort of gaze into the the crystal ball a little bit um assuming the uk does leave the eu then um and certainly if it leaves it with a a hard Brexit or or a chaotic Brexit, or at any rate, uh, you know, anything that that does not resemble um, the the, the kind of soft Brexit sort of EFTA-like Norwegian-style Brexit, where in in maybe a, you know, a, a decade's time do you think Scotland might find itself, Catherine? 
I think uh, if we come out in, in those terms, then there'll be a huge campaign for the UK to rejoin the European <laughs> Union. And we'll be debating and discussing the issues um, on terms that we'll never, ever have of what we have at the moment. So I think that... And it, um, it won't be just Scotland calling for it, you're saying? No, I think the UK, because I think that the issue is that uh, that people are being told one thing, but the reality is quite different. And I think, you know, you, you, all these songs that say, you don't know what you lost till it's gone. I think in some of the these uh, reflection points after you've lost something when people reflect about what it is we'll be arguing to get back in on as I say terms and conditions that are nothing of what we have at the moment yeah Libby I think I, I mean I, I would agree with that bar the fact that I think I think it depends if there is a sort of significant enough majority of Scots feel that there is a way of sidestepping that which is um regaining EU membership via independence mm. and um and and I think a, a lot of that has to do with um, with with confidence, really. I mean, we were sort of talking previously about why Scotland was um, sort of more uh, pro EU and and that sort of outward looking, uh, cooperative, sort of confident uh, identity. And um, and I think that you know if if people people still feel that that Scotland has that and could sort of regain that or sustain that in some way through independence and then I think we'll certainly be sort of setting the stage for another referendum. Right. My thanks to Libby and Catherine for joining me today. Thank you. That was a great discussion. Please subscribe and review on all your favourite podcatchers. Join the discussion on Twitter. Just search for Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch with us, it's Brexit Podcast. That's all one word, Brexit Podcast at theguardian.com. Till next week, then, I'm John Henley. The producer was Rowan Slaney. This was Brexit Means, and thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.